You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes. This week, Senior Minister Adam Hale begins our new sermon series, In the Meantime, in which we'll talk about what to do in those moments when you feel stuck and like there's nothing that you can do. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. This morning, we're beginning a brand new series today called In the Meantime. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to address that question that you just saw. What do you do when there's nothing that you can do? Um, What do you do when you're in a set of circumstances, when you're in a season of life, when you're in just a a situation and there's no way to change it? You know, there there are problems that you can solve, but then there are some unsolvable problems. And there are some tensions that you can resolve, but then there are some unresolvable problems tensions and so at some point in your life and in my life and for all of us and and for many of us more than once in our lifetime we're going to find ourselves in a set of circumstances in a season of life where where it just it is what it is and and there's no good answer there's no good options it just it's one of those things where again it it just it's the way it's going to be and so what do you do when there's nothing that you can do for many of us, it'll be relationally. You'll find yourself in a marriage, and it's not a great marriage, but, but it, you don't want to get divorced, and he doesn't want to get divorced, and she doesn't want to get divorced, and you look into the future, and nobody wants to change, and so it just it is what it is. For some of you, it's, it's with your kids. They don't want to grow up, and, and they're not going to grow up and be what you thought they were going to be. And, and along the way, you know, back in the ninth grade, you kept telling them, these grades count, these grades count, these grades count. And then about, you know, somewhere halfway through their senior year, they realized, oh yeah, these grades count. And it's too late. And so now they, their options, they're just not going to be what you thought they were going to be, what you wanted them to be. And so it just, it is what it is. For some of you, maybe it's financially. Your financial dreams aren't coming true and your financial dreams, they can't come true. And, and there's nothing you can do about it. Professionally, it didn't work out or it's not working out. And, and professionally, maybe somebody said that you did something and you're not so sure that you did that. And, and because of that, you've been kicked out of an entire industry and you can't go back into that industry. And so now your dreams aren't coming true. And this just, it's just the way that it is. This, is. this is permanent. There is no solution. There's no, in a few minutes, in a, in a few days, in a few weeks, if I wait a few years, maybe things will turn around. Nope, this is, this is it. This is the new reality. This is the new normal. And so for all of us, when we come to those places that during this series we're going to call in the meantime moments, when we come to those moments, and and again, we're not looking for for a solution because you're in a set of circumstances because, again, there's really no solution. There there are some options, but but they're all bad options. You know, you, you can run away, but you don't want to abandon your family. You can drink yourself into oblivion, but you know that just causes more problems. There are no good options, and things just are the way that they are. This is the new normal. This is the current reality. There's no going back. You know, you can't recapture those, those lost years. You can't recapture those first few years of marriage or those first few years of parenting or maybe those first few years of romance. And, and they're, they're just gone. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so in those in-the-meantime moments, there's a couple things that we do. Number one, it's really easy to get resentful. It's really easy to get angry. And it's really easy to compare. And all of us have a picture of, of what family is supposed to look like, what, what romance is supposed to be, what, what being stable financially is supposed to be like. And when you find yourself in a set of circumstances and, and it's, 
just not going to be the way that you think that it ought to be, the way that you thought it was going to be, then what do you do? What do you do when there's nothing that you can do? And just about everybody around you, just about everybody around you constantly reminds you, and not on purpose, they, they don't mean to, but it's with their lives and their smiles and, and their children and their invitations and their graduations and their vacations and what they drive and where they're moving and, and just the people that they know. Everything reminds you of what you will never be or what you can't even dream to be anymore. Oh, okay. That was awkward, but... See, what do you do when there's nothing you can do, right? Like, see, I can't do anything about that. Well, I think what we do, I think there's a couple things that we do. In fact, I believe that we begin to draw some conclusions and we begin to tell ourselves some lies that are very bad lies, that they're, they're not good, good conclusions. In fact, I think we tell ourselves three different lies, and the first one is this, that I'll never be happy again. We, we begin to think, I, you know, I long for the days of high school. I long for that first year of college when my parents paid for everything and I was living the life and I was doing everything I wanted and everything was great, but I can't go back to that. And so I'll never be happy again. I'll never, I'll never be as happy as I was then. I think the second thing that we tell ourselves, the second lie we tell ourselves is nothing good can come from this. And when somebody tells you that, yeah, you know, just give it some time, just wait a little bit, something good will come from this, you say, no, 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 I don't even want to hear that. Nothing good can come from this because you don't know my set of circumstances. You don't know my situation. It's worse than everybody else's. Nothing good will come from this. And then the last lie that we tell ourselves is, Maybe we get to that point of ultimate desperation and we just would say there's really not even any point in continuing. There's no point in going on. There's no point in battling through this. There's no point in fighting for this relationship. There's no point in trying to, to, to fight for my kids. I don't really even see any point in living. And so for the next, next few weeks, we're going to delve into this topic. In the meantime, what do we do really? What do we do when there's absolutely nothing you can do and in those moments at the epicenter of the crisis at the epicenter of the emotion especially for for christians especially for believers is the question that i want to start with today and so i want to bring all of you who who maybe are in a situation where you're saying yeah that's you're talking to me i am in the meantime i don't know what i'm going to do in fact i'm not sure that there's anything i can do i am in the meantime i want to i just want to bring us all to a point where we, where we recognize what the question is at, that's at the epicenter of, of our circumstances. And the question is this, is, is, does God know? Does God know? Does God know and does God care and is God concerned and does God hear my prayers? Because if, if we could just get some sort of sign, if we could just get some sort of affirmation that God, that God knows and that God sees what's going on in my life and that God hears my prayers, that would almost be enough, right? Like if we just had some sort of confirmation, that would almost be enough. Because for all of us, when we're in the meantime moment, the question is, where is God? Where is is God. So let me just state a truth to you this morning. I'm going to try to illustrate it a little bit, and we're going to talk about it for the next few weeks. But the bottom line is this. The truth that you need to understand this morning is that God is not absent, God is not apathetic, and God is not angry with you. God is not absent, although God feels absent. God is not apathetic. It's not like he's sitting in heaven and he's like, oh, you know, I've got all these other things going on. I created a universe, you know, I've got a planet to run. I've got all these other things. What was your name again? God is not that kind of God. Although when we're in it, 
when we're in the meantime, it feels like God is apathetic and God is angry. And so the good news today is simply that God is not absent and God is not apathetic and God is not angry. God's silence does not equate to God's absence. Okay, we need to understand that God's silence does not equal God's absence. But before we, we jump into the heart of that matter, I want to kind of poke around at something for a few minutes because I think this is something that we need to recognize about ourselves. When we're in the midst of an in-the-meantime moment, when, when everything is dark and it's not going to change, and, and we lift our eyes to heaven and we begin to pray, and heaven is silent, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there. All right, There's just a little bit of hypocrisy, because let me tell you what I know about every single one of you, and what I know about myself, and what I know to be true about every single person that has ever lived. There has been a night in your life a day in your life, a, a, a spring break in your life, a weekend in your life where the presence of God was the furthest thing from your mind, okay? Isn't, isn't that true? Like, there was, there was this weekend, that night, whatever, you're driving around because you're driving to get in trouble on purpose. Like, you know that you, you're just planning on sin, okay? And, and the presence of God is the furthest thing from your mind. You, you're like, God, I just... You're not thinking when you're when you're driving to wherever it is you're going. You're not thinking, God, I just want to feel you in this presence. I just want I just want to know. I just want to feel you in this moment. I just if I just had a little bit of your presence, that would be great. No, you're not thinking that at all. You're thinking I'm I'm going to sin. Like I've got it packed on ice. It's in it's in the cooler. I've I've got it hidden underneath the seat. Like it's a good thing the cops don't pull me over. Like we're we're going to to sin on purpose we've planned it out we've made reservations for it like we don't know her name but you know her last name or her first name you don't know all you don't know who she's related to but it's all good because you are planning a week or a weekend or whatever of just sin and we we begin to tell our things tell ourselves things like well god doesn't care you hope or God doesn't, that doesn't take individual behavior into account. You hope. God doesn't know my name, and I'm not even sure if there is a God, and I, and I got this, life is a journey, and life is a highway, and I was born to be wild, and whatever generational music it was that you, you listened to, you just turn it up and, and, and you tune out the presence of God. And this is the moment where if you were raised in the church, if you're a believer, like that your conscience begins to creep in. And anybody else's conscience sound like the voice of their mama? All right, because because you can in those moments you can just hear your mom saying, you know, if you go to the right places, you'll meet the right people. If you go to the right places, you'll meet the right people. And you're just like, Mom, I, I want to go to the wrong places because I want to meet the wrong people, right? And you're just trying to shut God's presence out. Isn't it amazing when we don't want to sense the presence of God? We know how to shut God right out. And all of us have done that. Maybe it's not as exaggerated as I, as I was making it out to be, but all of us have done that at some point. We have, we have purposely shut the presence of God out of our lives. And in spite of that, in spite of that, your Heavenly Father loves you. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because of one of the most famous statements in all of literature, not, not nonetheless all of Scripture, but, but this statement, for God so loved the Christians, right? For God so loved... The, the God fears. For God so loved the good people. John, a, a, a man who knew Jesus as an older man, looks back on his life at, and at his time with Jesus, and he penned these words For God so loved the world. The world that he gave his only son. 
And so here's the thing. See, the reason I know that God is not absent, the reason I know that God is not apathetic, and the reason I know that God is not angry is because He settled that on the cross when He poured out His anger on His Son. He settled once and for all whether or not He was angry with you, whether or not He was absent, going to be absent from you, whether or not He knows your name, whether or not He cares about you. He settled all of that on the cross when He gave His Son. And so we need to know this morning that God is present. And today I want to go to two stories, and I'm not going to go deep into these stories. I don't want to read you the whole stories, but they're just two accounts of people with Jesus and two people that knew Jesus and that Jesus loved. And it kind of set them up for this kind of thing that we're talking about, this in the meantime kind of moment. And so... Um, so the first one is this, this is the story of John the Baptist. And you, you really, to fully understand this story, to fully understand the, the, the comp- John's perspective from it, you need to read your Bible with a map. But we're not going to, I don't have a map here. In a couple minutes, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures so that it, you help understand you a little bit. But I want to tell you this story, and then uh, we're, we're going to look at a couple of pictures, and, and it'll help you understand, I think, what we're trying to illustrate. One day, Jesus is teaching in Galilee to some, some of his core guys, and he's about to send out a group of guys. And while he's doing that, a group of guys walk up to, up to him, and they say, Jesus, we have a question. We are John the Baptist's disciples. You, you have your disciples, Jesus, but we're the disciples of John the Baptist, and we have a question for you because John wants to know. And here's the question. Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Son of God? Because if you're not, we need to tell John because John needs to know if he needs to be expecting someone else. Now, here's maybe a question that we ought to answer is why didn't John ask that question? If John wanted to know, why didn't John ask the question? Well, because John was in prison. John was in a dungeon, not just any prison, but he was in a dungeon in the easternmost part of the kingdom, and so he's out in the desert, and he can't ask the question because John's not there. And so he sends some of his guys to ask this question. Now, why would John need to ask this question? Well, John's in prison because he has taken some shots at some of the political people in power. Um, He kind of did his ministry up and down the Jordan River, and there was a king that was in his area, and his his name was King Herod. Now this is the son of, his name was Antipas, uh, Antipas Herod, and this is the son of King Herod from the Christmas story, okay? And so K- King Herod, Antipas, and he had a brother named uh, Philip, and, and they're all like, it, it's a really weird family situation. In fact, they, uh, they had a, a niece named Herodias. Everybody in this family evidently was named Herod. And I guess it was an ego thing or whatever. But, but anyway, it gets confusing because Antipas is the king and his brother Herod Philip married their niece. Okay, so you've got to follow this. He married Herodias. And so Herod Philip, who's the brother of the king, marries the niece. And, and this is just awkward. And so time goes by and, and he goes to Rome for a little bit for, for just an extended trip. And while he's in Rome, his wife slash niece begins to have an affair with the brother slash uncle. Now, I, like we don't even do that in the South, okay? It's, it's, it's awkward. But when Herod Philip gets back into town, they have gotten married. And so she has left, Herodias has left one uncle for the other. 
And so anyway, this is a, it's a big scandal, and everybody knows. And there are no magazines, there are no tabloids, but everybody knows because this is scandalous even for that day and age. And so John, in part of his preaching and talking about sin and repentance, keeps using Herodias and King Herod as examples. And King Herod thinks it's kind of funny. He thinks it's funny that you know, somebody's talking about him and he's keeping his name in the news, and it's kind of funny. You want to guess who didn't think it was funny? Yeah, Herodias. She doesn't see anything funny about it, and so she gets John arrested and gets him thrown into prison. And so he's thrown into the dungeon, but it's not just any kind of dungeon. It's like the worst dungeon that they have, and it's out in the desert, and it's, on, it's at a place called Machaerus. And it's one of those places, it's, it's kind of on a hilltop, and, and you can go there, but Nobody wants to because it's not air-conditioned and it's hot and it's just, it's not a place that you want to spend much time. And so John's in prison and he's left there. And time goes by and time goes by and time goes by and he begins to have what we all have when time goes by and nothing changes. Doubts. He begins to have doubts and so here's the interesting thing. uh, Jesus loved John. Remember that John is doing his ministry in the Jordan River and he's baptizing people and all of a sudden one day Jesus walks up and, and John stops everything and he says, look, you've been following me but there's the guy. That's the guy. You need to follow him. I'm not even worthy to, to tie his shoes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the guy. John announced Jesus. John made it possible for Jesus to be so successful, for Jesus to have a successful ministry. And and remember, their cousins, their, their, their mothers were related. And so Jesus knew John. Jesus loved John. In fact, Jesus, this is what Jesus said about John. He said, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, and this is a big statement, among those born of women, there has not been anyone risen any greater than John the Baptist. Effectively, what Jesus is saying is that John the Baptist is the greatest man that's ever lived. He's the greatest man that's ever walked the face of the earth. How would you like for Jesus to say that about you? I mean, that's a big statement. Here is the greatest man who's ever lived. But now John isn't so sure what he thinks about Jesus. And here's why. Because when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, what do you think he did? think he visited maybe maybe sent a care package sent his disciples down there to to check on him what you know that would be what we would do right no it's not what he did in fact jesus goes well scripture tells us that jesus goes in the opposite direction he goes to hang out in capernaum and so jesus had heard that john had been put in prison and he withdrew to galilee leaving nazareth he goes to live in capernaum and if you're reading the bible like this is where you really need a map because you can see that where macaris is and macaris is over here and where jesus was is like right here and capernaum's way over here he goes the opposite direction and when jesus heard that john had been arrested and they put him in the desert in macaris you would have thought that he would have gone to visit him. But he didn't. Gee, he went in the opposite direction. And isn't that how we feel? We're, we're in the desert. We're, we're, we're up north. You know, we're in the desert and we're like, Jesus, where are you? I mean, like, are you at the lake? Are you at the beach? Where are you at? Because you're not here. And so you can get on a jet and you can go visit Macaris, but since you're not going to do that, here's a picture of it. That's Macaris. See, see that road that, that goes, it, you can follow it to, to the back side of it where the dungeon is. And it's, you know, it's not that great of a place. And, and you have to realize also that 
that when you were in the desert, when you were in the dungeon, there were no, uh, there were no trials. There were no court dates. You didn't, they didn't bring you food. It wasn't like our, our prison system today where you got three meals a day and you got cable TV and you got an air-conditioned place to live. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, you just were in the dungeon and if you didn't have friends that brought you some food, you starved to death. And they just kept you there until they remembered that they were supposed to do something with you. And so that's the view from McCarris. Not great. But here's the view from Capernaum. <laughs> Jesus has gone to the beach. His friend John the Baptist is out in the desert in a dungeon, and this is Capernaum. That's, that's the view from Capernaum. He's at the beach. You know, he's hanging out at the, underneath the cabana, and he's got all of his guys, and they're just having a great time. And so, so about a year and a half goes by, and John the Baptist begins to think, okay, what's going on, Jesus? And so he sends his, his, his guys to Jesus, and they say, hey, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? Because John's beginning to have doubts. And we're not, when we go back, we're not going to tell John about all this because he's depressed enough as it is. So are you, are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, I want you to tell him that I am the one. I want you to tell him about all the things that I'm doing for everybody else. I want you to tell him about all the people I've healed, about the lame that I've made to walk, about the blind that I've made to see, about the dead that I've raised back to life. I want you to tell John about what I'm doing for everybody else. And that's our life, isn't it? You know, the reason I tell you this is because when you're hanging out in McCarris and you're wondering where Jesus is, you, Jesus can still love you and Jesus can know exactly where you are and Jesus can know your, your name and not love you any less or be any less active in your life. And he did it for John the Baptist. He was not negligent to John the Baptist. He did not all of a sudden not care about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he loved. And just because he wasn't, physically present in his situation did not mean that he all of a sudden became apathetic or angry or absent from John the Baptist. And here's the fascinating thing. Right after John the Baptist guys leave and they go back to, to give John the Baptist this message, Jesus says this statement. He said, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's a powerful powerful statement blessed is the one blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me in other words blessed is the one who does not interpret my silence as absence blessed is the one that when i do certain things or i don't do certain things that they still have faith in me blessed is the one that when i when i don't change circumstances or, or blessed is the person that trusted me even in spite of me in other words don't interpret god's absence or god's silence as absence because Jesus knew about John, and he knows about you. And the other story is this, so I'm going to tell you the second story. And the only reason I bring this one up is because this is a really familiar story, and what's cool to me is that this story takes place right in about the exact same spot that John the Baptist is doing his ministry. And so where John the Baptist is you know, on the Jordan River, and he's baptizing people, and so this story takes place... Um, Pretty much in the same spot. And so Jesus is sitting around one day and, and somebody shows up and they say, Hey, Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. Now, now think about this. If somebody walked up to you and said, The one that you love is sick. 
or the one that you love has been in an accident and they're in the hospital, you need to go see them now. Who do you think we would be talking about? I mean, that's a really small circle of people, right? Like if you're married, maybe you think about your spouse. If you have kids, you immediately go to them. Like it's a very small circle of people if someone were to say to you, the one that you love is sick. And so somebody runs up to Jesus and says, hey, 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 the one that you love is sick now. Do we know who he's talking about? Anybody know? Yeah, he's talking about Lazarus. He's talking about Lazarus. He knew it was Lazarus because Jesus loved Lazarus so much that all they had to say was, Lord, the one that you love is sick. They didn't even have to say his name. And so what would you expect Jesus to do when he finds out that someone that he loves deeply is is sick? Well, I mean, he's Jesus. Like, he's going to get up and go heal him, right? Like, he's going to go make him not sick. You know, strangers have touched Jesus and they were healed. Jesus healed all kinds of people and he didn't know their names. I mean, yeah, he knew their names because he was God, but I mean, like, he didn't personally interact with them. He didn't know their names, their stories. But Lazarus, he knew. He loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. He knew them and he loved them. And so you would think that he'd get up and he'd go, but here's what's interesting. All of his disciples, they get up and they're ready to leave. And Jesus says, no, 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 sit back down. And they're like, yeah, but, but the one you love is, he said, I know, sit back down, it's okay. But, but we got to go, Lazarus is sick, I, I know, sit back down. And they're like, why, why are we sitting back down, why are we not going? And she's like, because I'm, I'm up to something. And you don't understand it, but something is going to take place, so it's okay, I've got this under control, sit back down. And Lazarus, he got sicker and sicker. And sicker and he died and Jesus knew his name and he loved him don't confuse God's apparent absence for apathy see this is important because I just want to create a category for us first to understand that that your unanswered prayer does not mean that God is uninterested that you and John the Baptist have something in common that you and Lazarus have something in common that you and some of the the people that God has used in the most unique way some of of the greatest people that have ever lived have something in common. You, Mary and Martha, you all all have something in common. Remember those three lies that, that we tell ourselves in the meantime? We believe those three lies. We look, that, that God, that I'll never be happy again, that nothing good can come from this, and that there's no point in going on. In those three lies, we lose hope and joy and purpose. But that doesn't have to happen. You have not been abandoned. You have not been forgotten by God. Your circumstances are just that. They are circumstances. They are not proof or evidence of God's presence or or lack of presence. And God's silence is not evidence of His absence. And His apparent absence is not a reflection of apathy. And so how do we know that? How do we know that? Because of the story of John the Baptist and the story of Lazarus. And the story of so many others. There's a category where, where we feel abandoned, but we're not abandoned. There's a category, there are seasons of life when God seems silent, and, and God is still, he's, he's neither silent nor still. But I love these words that Jesus said. Blessed is he, blessed is she, blessed is the one who does not stumble, who does not lose their faith on account of me. Father God, we love you. And what an amazing uh, thing it is that you love us. 
that you love us so much that you would be willing to die for us. And so, Father, in those moments of life when it seems like you're not around, that we're all alone, that you don't care about us, that you don't even know our names, Father, just remind us that you're still holding the whole world in your hands and that nothing, that nothing is outside of your knowledge, outside of your sight, that you know who we are. And even if we were the only ones on the face of the planet that needed redeeming, that you would have still allowed your son to die for us. So, Father, thank you for what we're about to witness. Thank you for this incredible moment that we're going to get to be a part of, that we're going to get to see this, this new life that begins today. Thank you that uh, you have placed people in Addie's life to, to lead her to this moment, to the acknowledgement that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the acceptance of, of your Son as, as Lord and Savior. And so, Father, may this be a reminder of, of why we do what we do. Of, of the extraordinary responsibility that we have to share the gospel so that we might be partners in life change with other people. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.